presenting sponsor of the Audible is Trader Joe's. Inside Trader Joe's is a five-part podcast series that takes you literally inside Trader Joe's. Go inside the TJ's tasting panel, travel to wineries in Napa Valley, and around the world to discover the next great Trader Joe's products. Discover why they wear those super fashionable Hawaiian shirts. You'll find Inside Trader Joe's on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to The Audible. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined as always by Bruce Feldman. And Bruce, by the way, belated happy birthday was last week. Thank you, Sue. I appreciate you uh, you thinking of me. I'll be a, a few a week late. Well, I was only a day late on the actual acknowledgement of it, but yes, a week late on the podcast. Thank you. Uh, so, Stu, I uh, actually did, got to see quite a bit of the Red River Showdown. It was quite the thriller. Anything surprise you about what happened in Dallas this weekend? Game of the year in college football so far, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I mean, I feel like last week's Penn State-Ohio State game was quite a thriller. But uh, what's fascinating to me here is, and I say this with just having seen Texas up close in their only loss against Maryland and then against TCU, they're growing up fast. And I go back to what Tom Herman said after they lost to Maryland, where and a lot of people were dismissive of this, when he said this is different than it was last year when we lost to Maryland. and. I still think they're a, they're a bit away from being a legit playoff contender, meaning meaning a team that could get to the playoff and actually win a game or more. What I think where I think they're lacking still is I don't think they have real difference makers in the D line at this point. They have some good players, but I just don't think they have what some of those other playoff teams are going to have. But Sam Mellinger is playing really well. They have good receivers. And their secondary is really good. And that's a really explosive offense they went up against and they went in toe to toe. And, you know, it was a great it was a it was a fun college football game and a great atmosphere. And that was my biggest takeaway. Hey, listen, don't don't rain on their parade and start dismissing all the reason all the thing, reasons why they would. We're not there yet. That wasn't the goal. I think that after the Maryland game, you know, there were people saying, Okay, it's going to be same old, you know, another seven and six kind of season for Texas. And at this point, you know, they are as legit a contender to win that conference as, as anybody else. You know, I think what stood out from that game the most is, and and this was just so significant. How you know Texas's offensive line has been so bad for so long. Uh, until Connor Williams, they had not placed an offensive lineman in the draft in years, and. They, they controlled the line of scrimmage, and um, maybe that's a bit of an indictment on Oklahoma, who, as we should note, fired Mike Stoops on Sunday. We can get into that in a minute, but yeah, it seems like our buddy Herb Hand, uh, who we've both known for a long time and has been at many stops and is now at Texas, has got that unit playing well. You see Ellinger having time to make those throws. They've got those big receivers, so if you give them time to throw and, and you get it to those big receivers, you know, you're going to have matchup promise to exploit so it's not the same old seven and six kind of team now when people say is texas back that depends on what your definition of back is i mean for me it would be getting to the level they were for most of the previous decade under mac brown where they were always a national contender we're not going to go there yet i don't know if this team's going to end up going 
nine and three or win the Big 12. We'll see. But, you know, for the first time in a long time, I really do feel confident about the direction of that program. Yeah, I'm with you. And I, I a lot of what you said, I agree with. I certainly think Herb has done a really good job there. They were missing their the leader of the offensive line, Zach Schaffelford, who, you know, at the beginning of the year has been out. Calvin Anderson, the grad transfer, stepped in really nicely for them at, at tackle, and they've had some young players in there. And I think it should be noted, because this is a little bit, you know, when you look at why USC has tailed off, they've had big offensive line issues, and they've had a lot of shuffling from one offensive line coach to another. And that's been the issue at Texas, too. They've had a bunch of different O-line coaches come and go, and that's a lot to learn for a position that it's critical to have some stability and continuity, and they haven't had that. And Herb is, has Herb Hand has stepped in there and done a really nice job. I think, you know, I, I think what's what's interesting here, now we know they've recruited really well, especially in the secondary, and you're seeing some of those young guys kind of step up. I think when when Texas is back, to me, is when they are a real national title contender. Meaning not just can, can they get there and do damage and, and be a real threat to win it all, not just a threat to win the, the, the Big 12. I think they're probably a step away from that. One other thing that's, that I think does bode well for them, and that's Keontae Ingram. A couple of weeks ago, we talked on the podcast about kind of what Texas has, what they don't have. To me, beyond just the, the, the difference makers in the D-line, they've always had some great running backs. And Keontae Ingram is the guy in the program that has the potential to be that. He's a true freshman running back, great vision, really elusive. He's a go-the-distance kind of player. I think he has a potential to be a feature kind of franchise running back. And he had almost 100 yards against OU the other day. I mean, he was hurt early in the year with with a knee injury, and he was in and out of the lineup. But he showed some of the reasons why I think Texas folks are really excited about him. And certainly the way Sam is Sam Ellinger is playing. Uh, he's a leader, and he's been throwing the ball well, much better in the last couple of weeks. I mean, just from a global standpoint, I think it's fun when when you have Texas football back nationally relevant. I mean, you and I covered so many games in Austin and so many trips that I just think it's one of these big brands that you know you like to see some of those programs back. It's not a not a slight at anybody else in the Big Twelve. I hope it's not intended that way, but. Uh, I mean, is that, am I wrong in saying it like that? I mean, or do you just kind of, you kind of see where I'm coming from? Well, yeah, because it's a really big deal for the Big 12, which, and I wrote this in Forward Pass on Monday, I think they're going to have the most exciting and entertaining conference title race down the stretch. And this is a conference that has obviously, you know, been the butt of a lot of jokes over the last few years. At the end of the day, even, they've had good – I mean, when Baylor was going under Art Bryles, obviously TCU's had some good years under Gary Patterson. It's not like they didn't have good teams, but those are just not considered to be national brands. Their two national brands are Texas and Oklahoma, and when they're both good, it just elevates the whole conference. Much like when USC is good, it elevates the Pac-12, but it's just been a while. I mean, it's really – you couldn't really say that at all this decade because this, it's, this is Texas's uh, first – or best at five and one, their best start since '09, and really '09 was the last time Texas was nationally relevant. So it should be fun going down the stretch because you've got those two, and and I'm not Oklahoma is not uh, going to fade away. It was a three point loss on a last second field goal. Kyler Murray was again. I mean, he made he first time really had a couple mistakes, but he was still sensational, especially on that long touchdown run during the fourth quarter rally. 
you know, they're going to continue to be a factor. West Virginia is clearly a factor. I think the winner of this week's TCU-Texas Tech game could get back in the mix. So Iowa State showed that they've got a pulse this past week. So a competitive conference. But with Oklahoma, I mean, I think when Lincoln Riley became the head coach last summer, you know, obviously he wasn't going to overhaul his staff, you know, three months before the season. He did bring in Ruffin McNeil as his last assistant. But it's just been this, this you know, not unspoken, but kind of, I mean, spoken subplot was what was going to happen with Mike Stoops. Because at the end of the day, you know, you look back at Oklahoma and all the success they've had these past several years. And 20, they were 27-2 and two in the Big 12 going to that game. They've done it without great defenses. And that's clearly been their weakness. They haven't been putting star defensive players into the NFL. And it just felt like he's got to get rid of Mike Stoops at some point. But... How awkward is that going to be? Because Bob Stoops handpicked him to be his successor, but I just think the performance this weekend gave him, you know, gave him an out basically. Yeah, I, I agree, and I think there was a lot of honestly a lot of pressure on Mike Stoops for a while, and just there's a lot of players in the program who are indebted to him. But I think at the same point, this had been, I, I think one of the things you would hear a little bit within the conference over the last couple of years is. They had a, people had a good feel on on opponents had a good feel on Mike Stoops where if you got him with this then you knew his temperament you know you could go back to this because of how he might respond to it or certain things like that and I thought they you would hear that sometimes things were very predictable and maybe that got the best of them they definitely have players it's not like they don't have it you look at that team now I think they got a bunch of NFL guys in it. We'll see how this goes going forward. This is this is only for the rest of the year. There's no guarantee Ruffin McNeil will be the defensive coordinator in 2019. A couple things about him. He was the best defensive coordinator Mike Leach had in his decade at Tech. He simplified things a little bit from his predecessors. Guys played hard for him. I mean, there's no coach that I think players like more than Ruffin McNeil. I mean, he's just one of these really affable, big-hearted guys. He and Lincoln Riley are very, very close. As you mentioned, that was the assistant Lincoln brought with him. I remember talking to him, him being Ruffin McNeil, right after Lincoln got the head, got promoted into the head coaching job. And they have a, uh, such a bond where... He wasn't planning on leaving Virginia for any job, but when Lincoln called him, because Lincoln had turned down a bunch of bigger paying jobs to stay with him when he was his offensive coordinator at ECU. So, as you said, I think the writing had kind of been in the sand, at least there, that this that this eventually might happen, and maybe it happened a little sooner this year than people thought, but uh, that big loss is what it was. We'll see how this team responds. I will say this. Coming out of it, Lincoln Riley is his own offensive coordinator, meaning Oklahoma is essentially probably saving about a million dollars on staff compared to what a lot of other places would would pay if you had a head coach and and an offensive and defensive coordinator. I would not be surprised that they're going to throw a lot of money at uh, someone else to come to Norman to run the defense if they don't make a playoff run. And I'm not saying that I know for sure that that's the expectation, but I think if things don't get markedly better under Ruffin, I could see that move happening and them throwing a lot of money at, I'm not saying they would be able to land like a Dave Aranda because you're already getting a fortune at LSU, but I could see them really looking hard at, at some of their options right now because they have the money to do it. So you don't think they're just going to promote Bob Diaco? I don't know, Stu. I, you know, I'll be honest, and, and Notre Dame fans, we could probably get Pete Sampson on and talk about Bob Yock or, or Matt Fortuna because I think they both covered him. But just from 
my time around Lincoln, Nebraska this April and you hear from from folks there who are inside the program, it just colored your opinion. This isn't even talking about like the Yukon stuff, which some of that stuff was just kind of very curious how he handled things. But just in, in terms of the Nebraska was such a was such a dark chapter there. And a, it's hard for me to look at it and go, yeah, that's going to be the guy. No, so I, I, charge. I, exactly. So imagine being a Nebraska fan who Oklahoma is still kind of your rival and they fire Mike Stoops. And guess who's sitting there as an analyst right now, or, or was an analyst? He has now been promoted to a position coach, Bob Diaco, at Oklahoma. That's just a little interesting subplot, given exactly what you just said, how bad things went at Nebraska. But look, Oklahoma's defensive problems, Mike Stoops takes the fall. But I think you also got to look at recruiting. Mike Stoops became, well, we won't even single this to him. I'm going to play a little game with you. This decade, um, actually starting in 2011, how many Oklahoma defensive players would you guess have been selected in the first three rounds of the NFL draft? Oh, is Gerald McCoy out of the mix at this point? Yeah, so it's starting the year after Gerald McCoy. Okay, wow. I bet you this is not going to be, let me think about this for a second. How many have been in the first three rounds? Yeah. Uh, I will say four. You overshot it you actually doubled the actual number so this is oklahoma brand name program uh, won a lot of games and yet somehow in this from 2011 through 2018 in fact the only year this happened was 2015 where was frank alexander drafted uh well in 2015 jordan phillips was a second round pick and uh gino grissom was a third round pick frank alexander was a fourth round pick in okay. 2012 they've had a lot of those guys Charles who Tapper actually wasn't like a third round pick They've had a lot of guys who... Where's got, Charles Tapper? you sure Charles Tapper wasn't like a Charles third or Tapper second? Charles Tapper was a fourth-round pick. Okay. Um, who else stands out here? Aaron Coleman was always considered to be a... Oboe, wasn't a, Oboe was a later-round pick, I know, because he was kind of a tweener, right? He was a fifth-round pick. fifth-round pick. Coleman was a fourth-round pick. So here's a program that, that strives to compete with the Alabamas and the Ohio States. And, but those programs put guys in the first round every year, certainly the first three rounds. So... Whether that's recruiting or poor development or both, it's frankly amazing they've won as many games as they have without those elite-level defensive players. Lincoln Riley's gotten off to a great start in recruiting. You know where they really that. tailed off, Stu? And I remember this is, this is kind of in the era where you and I were going to like Red River every year. And Roy Williams, to me, was the kind of like the cover guy of this. They had a ton of really good defensive backs. I remember it was like, Roy Williams, certainly. There was Andre Wolfolk. Derek Strait was a really good college player. I felt like they had one big-time DB who was either a first or second rounder like every every year, or at least every other year. They, I mean, obviously, they haven't had that in a long, long time. Bro, I mean, that's... Look, Mike Stoops' first time around uh, was great, but it was a different era of college football. You weren't having to defend all these wide-open, air-raid offenses every week in the Big 12. And this run just um, did not go as well from a production standpoint and in terms of the caliber of players that came through the program. It's, you know, I'm looking through this draft history now, and you're right. 2004, there was um, Tommy Harris, Teddy Lehman, and Derek Strait. And Andre Wolfolk was a first-round DB the year before that. So uh, that seems like a long time ago now. Another big game this past Saturday was Florida-LSU. And that was, I always, I consider that a toss-up game going in. Florida wins the game. I mean, I think that was a huge win 
for the Gators on the day that Tim Tebow is back and all that. It's uh, a real shot of morale for Dan Mullen, who everybody was down on after the Kentucky loss. They beat undefeated LSU. But here's an interesting byproduct of that. Georgia plays LSU now this coming weekend. And if Georgia beats LSU in Baton Rouge and LSU sustains a second loss, look at Alabama's schedule. Are they ever going to play a top 10 team this season? Auburn is going in the wrong direction. Mississippi State's not going to be that team. It's basically LSU or bust. That's an interesting point. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, certainly, especially now if, if somehow LSU knocks off Georgia, they will they will go into the top 10 again. But I don't think that's going to happen. I actually thought they were going to lose. I, I haven't been great with my picks against the spread. This was one I did pick. I thought Florida would beat LSU, and for a lot of the reasons that happened. I didn't – Florida El, Florida has – Really good defense right now has come up has has really come together nicely under Todd Grantham and LSU has had all kinds of injury issues up front. They haven't had much continuity there and they struggled to protect Joe Burrow and Joe Burrow they turned the ball over, which is something that LSU hadn't done yet. If LSU doesn't turn the ball over, they're tough to beat. When they turn it over three times, they're going to struggle because I just don't think they have enough firepower at this point. Uh, and then the other thing is. They really do look like they miss Caleb Hunt, Chase on, who is their best by far pass rusher. They have not been able to get much of a pass rush. And uh, so I'm going to spring this back into Florida now. We both think George is a clear top team in the East, in the SEC East. Kentucky lost in overtime at Texas A&M, which at night, that's not an easy place to play. Who do you think is the second best team in the East right now? Scott, I've got to say Florida. Now, even though, even though, even though Kentucky, Kentucky beat them, yeah, handled one. Yeah, and, and I got some flack from Kentucky fans for having Florida ranked in the top ten now, but not Kentucky. Uh, maybe I'm not. Maybe I'm not giving Kentucky enough credit. Uh, but one thing I wanted to mention. So we just, I just pointed that out about Alabama's schedule. Georgia, meanwhile, is now going to play. They have, they've already played four SEC games. They have four left to go, and all four of those teams are now ranked. Uh, they will play at LSU. They will play Florida and Jacksonville. They will play Kentucky, who's still obviously ranked. And then, for reasons I can't explain, Auburn is still ranked. And they play them in late November. So they're, they suddenly look like they've got the better schedule, despite being in the division that's supposed to be, right? Like the SEC East is supposed to be the inferior division. And yet Georgia, coming out of the SEC East, is is probably going to play a tougher schedule than Alabama down the stretch. Yeah, I, I'm guessing Auburn is getting a lot of a lot of juice from their close win over Washington at the start of the year. Because you look at it, I mean, they lost by two touchdowns this past week in a Mississippi State's program that was struggling. They only beat Southern Miss by 11. Now they blew at Arkansas, but Arkansas is horrible. They lost at home to LSU. I mean, they're four and two. They do have one good win. Now, it's, let's not dismiss it because it happened in the first week of the season. But here's the thing: it's just that, that pollsters refuse to—not refuse to—but they often don't shed the preseason stuff quickly enough. I mean, Auburn. The reason Auburn is twenty-third is they—they they were ninth the week before. After the, they only fell to ninth, and then they lose by two. It wasn't just they lost by two touchdowns. They scored nine points. Their offense is just brutal, you know, and. For some reason, which is, which is weird, I, because they have a guy a lot of people think is one of the most talented quarterbacks in the country, and he's coming back. Remember that stat a couple of years ago 
maybe it was two years ago, maybe it was four years ago for all I know, when it was like Gus Malzahn, has, he just never has a returning quarterback. Yeah. Well, he has one, and they should be better than this. I, I don't quite see where the disconnect is. And keep in mind, when they were getting in the brutal part of the schedule, they still even have not gone to, fly, to Georgia or Alabama, which they have to do both of those games. They're going to play at Mississippi, which I think they'll handle that because Mississippi's really bad on defense. But they still have to go. They still have to host A and M. That's no pushover game. I mean, this is a team a lot of people thought was a top five team going into the year. I mean, they they could be looking at a seven and five year very easily. The problem is that for some reason it's in the water at Auburn that they are not allowed to have back to back good seasons. It's it's the strangest thing. They're always riding this roller coaster. Stidham is not playing well. Their offensive line is a problem. Certainly going into the season, a big question mark was replacing Carryon Johnson, and I don't think they've succeeded at that. So it frankly diminishes a little bit that Washington game on both sides of it, which is an interesting segue into one of the better games this coming weekend, Washington-Oregon. How do you feel about the Huskies right now? I am a little bit uh, tilted on them because two weeks ago I got to see them up close. They blew out BYU. BYU is a tough one to make make a read on either because they have almost no team speed, but they did beat Wisconsin at Wisconsin, which is a good win. And then last week, I watched them on Friday night. Utah State hammered them. So, you know, I don't know how, how much you can read on that. I think Washington is a really good team. I think they're excellent in the secondary. I think they're pretty good overall on defense. They're really good overall on defense, but, but great in the secondary. And I think that Jake Browning, while Jake Browning is not is not Dwayne Haskins as a passer, I think he's a really good college quarterback. They have a couple of really good running backs. Their receivers are getting better. I think they're a really good team. I think they're the best team, hands down, in the Pac-12. I don't know if that says that much this year, to be honest. But I think they're a really good team. Now, I know you're going to disagree with me on this. Well, I, it's not that. I, I do think they're a very good team. I do still think they're the favorite in the Pac-12. But something just isn't quite right there. They went to UCLA this week, and, and UCLA actually had some offensive success for the first time against that really good Washington defense. The thing with Jake Browning is, and I've said this before, and I hate to keep bragging on the guy, but I've yet to see him have a signature performance in a big game. He puts up his stats against the other teams. That's not He's, fair. He ha- he blew out. When they crushed Stanford, he had a big game. You're right. That's his one his one shining moment. But like when they play, certainly in the in the Pac-12 title game that year against Colorado, uh, they won the game handily, but he didn't play great. Certainly the playoff game against Alabama, the Auburn game this year. He's respectable 30th in pass efficiency. He's got a nine touchdown, five interception ratio. Uh, I do think they're they're still the favorite to win the Pac-12, but I also think it's not a given they're going to go into Austin and beat Oregon this week. And if they lose, given that Stanford is heading in the wrong direction, if Oregon beats Washington this week, Oregon controls its destiny in that division. If Oregon beats Washington, like Mario Cristobal and his staff have done really, really well in recruiting going into this year. And this is like sometimes we talk recruiting and it's like overstated. This one I don't think will be. If they win that game, because I'm not saying they go head to head with Washington. I mean, they do, but not like that's not all. They're going head to head against USC, UCLA, everybody else on the West Coast. This would be a huge statement game for that program. Because I, I think, especially if they got their quarterback comes back, Justin Herbert, and we know his younger brother's coming to, to Eugene next year as a tight end. 
they're going to be they could be scary good i, I think they're they would be a top 10 team for is sure that a possibility I, I i thought everybody assumed he's going to go out and he's going to be one of the first quarterbacks taken i don't i wouldn't think it's a i don't think it's a lock i really don't like i said he got a chance to play with his younger brother he hasn't played that much football remember he only played like one one full year of high school football and then he got injured for much of the last season he's playing now He's a great student, still a you know he's a local kid. I don't think it's a lock that he would leave early. I'm not saying he's okay. he's definitely coming back, but and I think this program is going to be really good if he stay. You know, it's hard to say they're a year away and then he leaves, but I think they're a really interesting program that because they're recruiting at a much different level now, they're bringing in big big people to be physical. You know, it's an interesting matchup. I kind of cringe a little bit when you're the way you talk about Jake Browning, and just to be perfectly blunt, I think sometimes, and I, I'm guilty of this too. Let's say somebody, and it could be you, could be hyping up a guy for the Heisman, and I'm gonna try to try to say, well, I disagree, and then also you feel like you're crapping on the guy, and you don't right. want to do that. Like I, again, I feel like Jake Browning gets a lot of the Ken Dorsey treatment, where he was a really excellent college quarterback and great for the program. And because he was really good as a freshman and sophomore and then his numbers have not gotten better, people kind of start to find fault. And that happens when somebody's been around for a while. So I, I don't want to say I'm uncomfortable with it. I just kind of like, eh, you know, these are college players. They're not, you know, this isn't uh, this isn't an NFL guy. This isn't, you know, Dak Prescott or somebody else. No, you're else. right. I, I generally avoid criticizing college players for that reason. Sometimes I think... It's hard to avoid that when you are talking about a four-year starter quarterback. Let me just look here to what you just said. Have his numbers really not? His numbers as a sophomore were outrageous. Now he had more proven receivers then. Like he had forty. As a sophomore, he and that was forty-three touchdowns. John Ross. uh, Well, they had Pettis. They had um, the Dante Pettis. I'm trying to remember who else. They had another really good receiver too that year. His pass efficiency rating right now is about the same as it was last year. He's just not passing here as much. They're just they're they're relying on that running back tandem more. So, okay, apologies. You're right. Apologies to Jake Browning. Uh, but in terms of Oregon, you know, if they win this game, they're not a year away. They're this is their year. I did misspeak. They would not control their destiny unless Stanford loses another game because Stanford another Pac-12 game because Stanford beat Oregon. But you know, even that game. It's obviously a game Oregon should have won. They they did a lot of impressive things in that game. So I don't know. Of the big games this coming weekend, Georgia LSU is considered the the marquee game. Game day is going to Wisconsin Michigan. That's a good game. But for some reason, I'm most intrigued by Washington Oregon. Okay. Well, uh, let me ask you this too: Are you going to stay up late for the for the battle to control the fate of the Pac-12 South? Oh, of course I am. First of all. Well, I'll be staying up later than I usually do for Pac-12 after dark because I'll be on Central Time. But uh, yes, of course, Colorado SC, Colorado 5-0 and for the first time in 20 years. I, I don't want to say this game will decide the Pac-12 South, but whoever wins it will, will basically con- be in control. This is your game, I take it? This is our game. It's actually the first time I've ever done a home game in four years as a sideline reporter, meaning I don't, you know, I haven't done a UCLA home game or a USC home game, but uh, so I'm liking not having to get on a plane, both sides of that. I'm curious to watch Colorado in person. I mean, we've talked a lot, probably more than anybody else on a podcast about LaVisca Chenault over 
in the past month or so to get to see him in person. Also, Steven Montez, who I think is really good. Uh, I'm curious what down the road, what how NFL people evaluate him, but he's playing really well. And USC, this is an opportunity for, I think, for USC to say, okay, I know a lot of people look at this program and think the sky is falling. I think a win would quiet some of that down. A loss would certainly escalate it and see how much growth they made. We had them, we had them week two against Stanford where they kind of got mauled. They could not protect uh, JT Daniels. They struggled to get much pressure on KJ Costello. And granted, it's Stanford, but we've seen we've seen that Stanford program really struggle since then. So, you know, where is USC right now? How much how much growth have they made since since early in the year? I mean, had a week off. They did not look great against Arizona, where they stumbled to a win with a ton of penalties. So, I'm interested in that. But uh, just tell me this: you will be hopscotching around Evanston in the greater Chicago area changing TVs so at least people are watching late at night. Well, the question is, first of all, I should be... What do you mean the question is? What do you mean the question is? No, well, the, the question, question is, no will, question. The, will the residents in I'm staying in get FS1, right? The, the FS1 will, that remains the, demand it. the you, last If you frontier. go to your Twitter feed and just put put all put all Marriott properties in residence ones, residence ones, residence in... FS1 is a, uh, you know, well, widely known channel at this point they have lots of big college football games like this one but their last frontier is hotel rooms it's kind of hit or miss whether they'll be on your in your hotel room or not just just to explain what you're saying uh this saturday will be the first time in 15 years that i am not either not covering a game or at home watching the games and actually attending a game in the stands it is my 20th reunion not to date myself 20th reunion and so I haven't gone to, I haven't been able to go to them usually because college football weekends, but I will be there. I will be in the stands for just a, an epic football clash between the two and three Wildcats and the 0 and five Nebraska Cornhuskers, at least Northwestern coming in on a win now. Um, but yes, I will be obviously keeping an eye on everything and I will watch that Colorado USC game if, uh, if, if wherever I am has FS1. If, if not, go to a sports bar still. Go to Some, sports sometimes, bars sometimes they don't have FS1. Oh, Sue. <laughs> go to the wrong sports bars. Believe me, I'm at least not Pac-12 Network. There would be no chance of that. In, hey, uh, before you, uh, while we're on this, did you at all watch any of the fights Saturday night? I wasn't like, I mean, first of all, don't you have to pay to watch that? I went to a, I, was, I went to a sports bar down near our hotel in Columbus. It was and, happening uh, uh, right at the end of the Stanford-Utah game, I believe. So when the game ended... Instead of Sports Center showing college football highlights like they usually do, they went to Vegas for breathless reporting about this brawl afterwards. This yeah, brawl. I mean, by then I think I had seen the the clips on Twitter of it. Um, I don't I don't follow this stuff at all. They were talking about what a black eye it was for for UFC it, but uh, it seems like it just got them a lot of attention. Like, is it really is it really going to have any sort of harmful effect on them? No, I don't think so because the people who who watch UFC or watch MMA, I don't think they're that uncomfortable with that kind of thing. And look, Daniel White, like they UFC, loved it. it yeah, like Daniel White really and UFC used all of the Conor McGregor, Habib scuffles and press conference stuff and throw a throw a, a 
dolly through, you know, at a, at a bus in their, in their run-up press conferences. So I'm sure they're going to show this if there is indeed a rematch. The, the card itself was very entertaining. So I go down the street with, with a bunch of our crew from Fox to, 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 uh, to watch it. And like, it, what's interesting is like you're in the sports bar and there's the Yankees Red Sox was on one TV. The A&M Kentucky game is on another Notre Dame Tech, Virginia Tech is on another. And then some of the FS1 pre-fight card was also on pre-main event was on. And then I was telling my producer, who's not a UFC fan, I was like, hey, when 10 o'clock hits, every TV in this place is going to change which he, I don't think he was a huge fan of because he's watching college football, and I agree. I mean, did maybe this they place, by the way, do they, do they charge a cover? I don't think they did because, no, we paid for a table, but, uh, I mean, they were packing people in. It went from being like 73 degrees to about 90 degrees by the time the main event started. I mean, I it was mean, just I remember steaming going to hot there. a sports bar a few years ago for the Mayweather-Pacquiao fight, and they were charging a cover because... The sports bars don't pay forty five dollars or whatever. Like they get, they have to pay a lot to be able to carry those uh, fights. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. I mean, I know they. I know we paid quite a bit from being there for four or five hours from food and drink. But, but uh, you know, just the card itself was very entertaining. I mean, I don't want to drag. I don't want to. You know, for our non UFC fans, I don't want to make this any more painful than it is by talking more about that. Uh, I do have a transition I'd like to make here. So we're in Columbus and I've seen this uh, story earlier today. Danny Sheridan, a longtime Vegas handicapper and USA Today analyst, said that if Alabama played Ohio State on a neutral site, what do you think the point spread would be, Stu? I mean, they've been saying for the last couple weeks that Alabama would be a double-digit favorite over anybody else in the country. So I'll just say 10. He says seven on the neutral okay, site. It's gone down apparently. Uh, I guess I don't know. That's that's his take. Um, got to see Ohio State in person against Indiana. A couple of quick takeaways. Indiana plays hard. I have a, a lot of respect for Tom Allen and their staff because when you we went to their walkthrough on Friday, you're eyeballing their team compared to Ohio State. They should they look like they shouldn't be anywhere near competitive against them. And they were four and one coming in the game, albeit struggling, you know, with Rutgers the week before. But they gave Ohio State trouble because they play really hard. I think their their quarterback Peyton Ramsey played better than I thought he would. Ohio State's defense has given up some big plays, and they gave up they gave up a few more. And I thought, uh, you know, the kind of headline is going to be Dwayne Haskins. If anyone right now is pushing Will Greer and Tua for the Heisman, it's Dwayne Haskins because he's putting up numbers like no Ohio State quarterback has ever put up. And he is impressive to watch throw the football, and they got really good, experienced, smart receivers. And they're fun to watch because they go downfield so much, but they do give up some big plays right now because I think where they've been so good in the last couple of years in the secondary and even at linebacker, they're a little shaky there. You know, they, they miss a bunch of tackles and they've definitely missed some assignments. And, and so I don't want to say they get exposed, but, you know, this, as you, you pointed out, I think last week, KJ Hamler burned them for some big plays. When they played TCU, Darius Anderson you know, had a 93 yard run against them. And Indiana got some, some big plays. Uh, if you're an Ohio State fan, how concerned would you be by the defense? Oh, I'd be I'd be very concerned about the defense because this was not a one-time thing, like you said. They definitely, definitely have issues 
in the back seven, obviously. But here's the thing. The team that was probably best suited on their schedule to expose that was Penn State. So they took care of that. You look at the rest of their schedule. Like, like what quarterback are they going to face? What, the guy, the what guy quarterback in, instead of receiver? Oh, okay. I'm not saying this is going to be an upset. The guy in Ann Arbor who's there runs almost as well as Trace McSorley and can throw. And he's got a really good release. He's, in, he's not as consistent as Trace McSorley. But he's a, he's a dangerous player for them. Well, let's talk about Michigan for a second because uh, that's where game day is heading this week. They're playing the Badgers. Two weeks ago, they needed a comeback to win in Evanston. This past week, they handled Maryland. They continue to be kind of – there's just a wide variance when they play on home versus the road. But I don't know. I mean, I'm starting to come around to the idea that they may actually be able to, to, to play or possibly beat Ohio State. But I'll say that, and then they'll go and score nine points against Wisconsin. Like, sometimes you watch them, and you're like, okay, yeah, Shea Patterson's having a nice effect on them. Uh, he's got guys to throw to, et cetera, et cetera. And then there's other times you go, I mean, they don't have any receivers that scare you. The running backs are good. I wouldn't say they're great. Um, obviously, the defense is phenomenal. And I guess the formula to beat Ohio State will be you'll have to disrupt Dwayne Haskins, and if anybody could do that, it would be Michigan. And then you're going to have to generate big plays on offense. Here, You asked me originally, should they be concerned? Uh, Ohio State's given up 20 plays of 30-plus yards. That ranks 121st out of 130 teams nationally. So, yes, they should be concerned. You know what gets the, has gotten them a lot is they have missed a lot of tackles. Yep. There's a, they've missed a lot of tackles, and I think when your safeties aren't getting guys down, the 15- to 25-yard play becomes, becomes a touchdown. You know, that's where you get. And I think some of those issues have happened. I do think Isaiah Pryor was suspend, was not suspended for the first half of the uh, – is that how we word it, by the way, suspended if you were ejected from a game? Uh, no, you're not suspended. You're yeah. you're held out. You're held out. Yeah. yeah, our listeners know. So he's held out for the first half of the game. Indiana had over 300 yards of offense in the first half when Isaiah Pryor's safety came back in was able to come back in in the second half. Indiana had moved the ball a little bit, but nowhere near as as explosive as they were in the first half. We're, we're largely shut down, and Ohio State took over the game. I think having him back there helped a lot. So that's that's the point that should be noted. One curious thing happened in the game that uh, was just kind of surreal. I will bring this up. I, I want to say it was like in the middle of the fourth quarter. I am on the Ohio State sideline, and... Ohio State is around the red zone. I want to say they might have been at the 20 or so, 25. And there's a pass play, and Haskins is basically, before, almost before he can see the open receiver, it's Terry McCart. Urban Meyer is like blurting out. It's kind of like what I thought was almost like when, you remember that famous uh, highlight of Carlton Fisk when he hits the home run in the, in the World Series where it's like he's kind of skipping and kind of trying to keep it in, in uh, keep the, the home run in fair territory. Mm-hmm. Urban's kind of almost like hopping at like that point, pointing to the open receiver, which obviously Haskins can't hear him, but he knows he's open. So he throws the ball. And at that point, it's a touchdown. I kind of see Urban Meyer has like bumped into or collided with some staffer and he's down. He's, you know, the headset's off. And it's like, whoa, what, the, what, what just happened? And, 
so, or, you know, when I talked to the trainer and they said, you know, he's, he's fine. He just said, said, uh, you know, he collided with, with a stat, with somebody on the sideline. And that was that. And I talked to urban after the game, he said it was, that it was no, you know, not, not a big, big deal. deal. He's had these headaches and this goes back, I think to the cyst health issue that he's had. So, so wait a minute, let me stop you right there. So yep. I was watching when it happened. I saw your report and it was obviously tweeted a lot about but at his press conference, he said there was no collision. He just got a headache. No, I think I, I, I'm not mistaken. I didn't see the press conference. I saw quotes from it. I don't think he said there was no collision. He said it was from that. It wasn't from the collision. Ah, so both things can be true. Yeah, I think it was a case of he said he was having a bad headache. And I guess now again, and this is where it's sensitive, because like I said, I, I wanted to ask Urban Meyer after the game and our post-game interview about it just because that's where it comes from but, but like and it's a sensitive area where you're talking about somebody's health and i don't i, I could see you know people are going to be plenty skeptical on urban meyer at this point because of you know he had health issues at florida and i, I think that uh from what i was told from somebody who was close to him that this issue as flares up a lot when he has a lot of stress and it's stress related i mean he went down and it was it was kind of a surreal moment. It's scary to see any anybody on the sideline just take a knee and all of a sudden their their training staff is is evaluating them. So I don't know exactly what caused it to flare up at that time, you know, as I said, but it looked like he was struggling. You know, I, I talking to our our crew a little bit, you know, who has cameras on him. It looked like he was struggling a little with with that from time to time through the course of the game in retrospect. So we'll see. He said he's fine. And he said, you know, that's an issue that I think that's an issue that he's been dealing with. You know, he said he's he's good to go and he doesn't have any plans to undergo or have any procedure surgically in regards. It's called a, some uh, was it arachnoid cyst. I yeah. think is the term. So 20. I remember when he had the surgery for it, it was in 2014, but then he never really heard anything about it again until until the. Um, scandal this summer and the report that came out that said well maybe one of the reasons he couldn't remember things at big time media days was the medication he's been taking and uh and that was i think the first i'd heard about it in four years and then yeah now you're hearing about it more especially because of this flare-up so i hate when people whatever your feelings are about urban meyer i hate when people make light of health situations so and it's a very personal, yeah, you're right. Yeah. And it's a very personal topic. And it's like one you're trying to be, you know, to be sensitive for. But that's one that was like, again, just to see, to see a coach down on the, on, the, on the field, especially in the middle of like right after a touchdown, you're looking like, whoa, what, what just, what's going on here? So, so anyway, that was that. Was that. Um, Let me just, we, we do need to get the mail back, but I, this whole conversation just made me think of something real quick. So, you said you happened to be right there. He went down right in front of you. How do you do? You think you would have been able to report this or knowing that it was happening if, if for if that particular moment you were on the other sideline? If I didn't I see it, probably not. I mean, I happened to be the like, guy was in the red zone, you know. And where I can stand as a sideline reporter is I can't stand in the middle of their bench area. I mean, I can not supposed to walk through that, but like so, I happened to be there. And Urban, by the time where he ended up was literally probably like less than 10 feet in front of me. So it just, it was one of those things where I happened to see it. I mean, I saw him kind of react to the to the play developing almost before it developed. And so I happened to see it again. And 
it just a lot of times there's so much stuff going on in the game and the sidelines are crowded so that's something you'd miss but I had that happened to happen right in front of me so crazy um, crazy yeah crazy. it was it was a crazy moment. let's One get to the mailbag. mailbag yeah as always send your questions to the audible pod at gmail.com you actually answered one of them already brian myers had asked about ohio state fan asking whether they should be concerned about their defense he also asked you bruce if you dislike being on big 10 and beyond as much as it appears you dislike being on big 10 and beyond on the big 10 network i actually like being on the show i think that's a little bit of me kind of i'm on the, we tape that or we tape that thing from our fifth floor at fox and sometimes it's a very sterile environment you're in a small area and some people are a lot more comfortable in doing the talkbacks than probably I appear to be on that. I will ramp up my energy from that. But uh, I, I, I sat at that update desk and had to read things. Or- you were not in there. This is a different one. This is in a room. It's not in the update desk. Just to finish on that, like I, I will say this, this is now a, somebody who's a TV person. To me, the, hard, the, the most challenging things have been, and I remember doing this when I would do on the college football live show, it would be you were either calling in or doing some taped, you're taking it from to somebody and throwing it and you're just basically giving a, giving a, uh, a comment and it's just, there's no environment to it. And I think sometimes that is not easy because you're just trying to manufacture something. No, I'm on the, I'm on the talk back with Dave Revson and, and coach Donardo. But at the same point, it's just like, you know, you're, you're in a very sterile environment. You know where it's really that's weird? challenging. You know where it's really weird to do it? In your house. Uh, I had that home cam for three years, so I'll try to paint the picture as best I can. At that time, we lived in a townhouse. I had my own office on the bottom floor. It was pretty small. That home cam setup took up half the room. And so whether it was a... Uh, they used it more for basketball, it seemed like, often with the bracketology stuff. But also maybe if you... If there was a Thursday night game on FS1, they'd have me come on the post game or something. So the lights fire up and, uh, you know, I got to wear a, at least a suit top on air and Rob Stone or whoever's in my ear. And I'm just like, like you said, you got to project. You got to talk with all the energy level that you would if you were there on the set. Only you're sitting in your living room practically or your office shouting. It's a, it's a weird feeling. Yeah, I, I think for me, I'm so now used to being at live events where it's almost like you have to throttle down your energy because your adrenaline's so up because I'm at an event. Or even when I do studio stuff with Rob and Wanstead and those guys, you're kind of feeding off their energy, whereas in that room, I got somebody in my ear, it's not that loud, it's almost like you feel like you're doing it in the library. And so so that's a long-winded answer to uh, to a good question. <laughs> I apologize for, for that. I will By the way, props... Noted. By the way, props to all those guys. They did a great pregame show from Dallas for the. Uh, in fact, their pregame show outside the Cotton Bowl looked and felt more like game day than game day did, since they were inside the stadium with no crowd behind them. I will say there was a moment when they did like a Dr Pepper throwing contest between Liner and Vince Young, where they had to throw the ball inside. You know, you've seen it at the conference championship games. Like you have to throw it into a pretty narrow window. Liner did great. He won. As for Vince Young, remember Back to the Future 2 when Marty McFly sees himself in the future and he no longer is able to play the guitar? Mm-hmm. He's just awful at it. It was kind of like watching that. Vince does not still have it. It's okay. Vince, Vince played the greatest game yeah. that one of us have ever seen. 
he can uh, he can rest on that. And Vince went to a couple Pro Bowls, I think. So Vince will. Sure. Vince had a. Vince is a real legend. Not he's a legend. Too, he's your he's your one B to Cam Newton's one A, I assume. Yeah, I mean, look for the one game. To me, Vince was like like that was the best game I've ever seen a uh, a single player have on a big stage. Oh, no, no right? question, no question. I mean, uh, I still remember glancing down at the sideline when USC had like a double digit lead. Vince Young's looking like like I got it. Don't worry, you know, put the program on my back, and he did. So, the next question is from James Cunningham from Raleigh. Bruce and Stewart, last week in your shout-out, you gave one to Luke Fickle. That would be Stu. You did. With what happened in 2011, going 6-6 six and six as an interim head coach, do you think he'll ever get a, another shot in an elite program, or will the outcome of that one season overshadow whatever he may do in his coaching career? That's a great question. Luke Fickle, 6-0 and oh right now. Cincinnati just cracked the top 25. You know, to even get a shot at one of the, like an Ohio State-type job, you got to have a, you got to he would have to have a run at Cincinnati like Brian Kelly had there or like Tom Herman had at Houston that's how you get in the running for a Notre Dame or Ohio State so we're a little bit ways away from that happening just yet if it does you know i think a power 5 program would have no hesitation giving him a job but would a Ohio State Notre Dame USC would they be okay hiring somebody who the one chance he had at that level didn't go so great. I would say under circumstances that were not necessarily all his own making. I don't know. That's would, hard. That is hard for me to picture. I would say you, you kind of made it unfair when you threw in USC, which has very curious hiring situations. They almost never hire somebody who's not in their orbit. So let's just throw that one out. Notre Dame is a unique one too. I think if he keeps winning, Luke Fickle is 45. He's very well respected as a football guy. And just from talking to people around Ohio State, talked about hey, he evaluated this guy and recruited that guy when sometimes they weren't people you would naturally think would be, they were like not necessarily five-star guys and turned out to be really good players. I think that's a good chip for him. There's not a Big Ten job if he keeps winning that I don't think, like if he keeps winning at this pace, and I'm not saying he needs to go 12-0 and every year, but if this is he has a really good group of five job now. Cincinnati's one of the better group of five jobs. He's a lifelong Ohio guy. I mean, down the road, could be the next head coach at Michigan State. I don't. I wouldn't rule that out. Yeah, absolutely. A, you know, the Ohio State job is a is a huge one. I mean, my gut is things kind of keep developing. Is you know, would that be the job that Matt Campbell ends up being offered? You know, who knows? It's it's a long range. Mark Antonio is not going anywhere, as far as I know. No, but I think again, I think right now, I think Luke Fickle is going to need a couple more years at this rate. I mean, he's still a young head coach by experience standards but to answer uh to answer james's question no i definitely don't think that disqualifies him you know his interim run there when he's thrown into a really challenging situation i think that's i think honestly i think that's good experience for him just for what he's doing here now but i think he's in a pretty good spot kind of towards that end just by the way spending a little more time around ryan day this weekend i think he's definitely somebody who is much better off even though it was a shorter interim run and he was 3-0, and I think that time for him really is going to bode well when he gets to become a head coach. So I, I wouldn't, uh, you know, I think there's, I think if you get the interim job and you can kind of learn from it, which I think Luke has done, I think it bodes really well for his future there. You know where he would be uh, like the perfect fit? 
would be Pitt if uh, if Narduzzi doesn't work out. But obviously, we're talking about more glamorous destinations than that. Hey, Narduzzi had a nice win this weekend. He did. He did. Just when you just when you're ready to count him out, man, he comes off the mat. That was a good win. Who's counting him out? You are counting him out. <laughs> uh, I, I'm not necessarily counting him out, but I've seen people who are. Jay Bruin. So you can guess where this is going. San Marcos, California. So far, the Chippa Kelly era has gotten off to a bit of a rough patch. I never thought I'd be saying this, but UCLA could go 0 and 12 this year. I don't. I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, they showed some life this weekend, but anyway, I realize it's going to take time for Chip Kelly to restock the program. He's playing a ton of freshmen, and I was wholeheartedly in on the hire with a fan base seemingly more directed at the basketball team. Do you think that if Chip Kelly fails to turn around UCLA foot, turn around the program, that UCLA football will be doomed? to irrelevance and perpetuity. I do not. I think that's obviously getting too far ahead. Uh, I think they'll probably, I would not be surprised if they win one of their next two games. I think they will. They have Cal this weekend, a lot of familiarity in between these two staffs. Jerry Asnaro came from, uh, came from Cal as well as one of their offensive staffers. Then they play Arizona at home. I, I think they are getting better. Their schedule is as hard as anybody in the country. I think it's only a matter of time before they get things going in the right direction. So I would hold off on like the doom and perpetuity. And the question is going to be, if I asked you this, and I don't know what your answer was, within four years, do you think Chip Kelly wins a Pac-12 title? You would have said in the summer, and what do you say now? I still say yes. I still say yes as well. I don't think he's forgotten how to coach. Now, I will say one concern is recruiting. You know, they're they're not. But I think as of last week, they had eight commitments. They were ranked really, really low. Uh, I don't know that that staff is necessarily stocked with guys who are known to be elite recruiters. So to do what you just said, you know, I have no doubts about his X's and O's acumen, his leading of a program. But to win a Pac-12 championship in the next four years, he does need to get better players in there. He does, and I think he will. But I think with Chip Kelly and his system and his personality, there's going to be some guys. And I like this is a little bit like the guy he coached against this weekend, Chris Peterson, where he's going to look and go, you know what? We're not taking that guy. I don't care how highly he's ranked. He doesn't fit personality-wise. I don't want you know either that level of entitlement or whatever. And I think ultimately, sometimes that that will cost you in the star system of what, you know, what uh, some of those character guys usually, you know, that that can make the difference between having the number three class in the country and the number eight class in the country. By the way, just since we're talking about that, how many top 10 recruiting classes do you think Chip Kelly had at Oregon? I don't think he had any. No, 2009, they were ranked 30th. So just keep in mind that uh, that's, you know, he's in a different place, obviously. He's, he's around more talent. They, they weren't recruiting top 10 classes at Oregon, and he was wildly successful there. Now, I know critics are going to go, well, yeah, now college football's caught up to him. Again, people, a lot, when Mike Leach got to Washington State, people talked about, and he struggled early, oh, yeah, everybody caught up to him. I mean, he's still winning at the same pace he did in Lubbock and probably a harder place to do it. So I think... I don't I think, think there's any such thing. Like, when people say, oh, they've caught up to it, they're assuming that that guy hasn't changed his own offense at all. He's not running the same exact offense he did in 2009. 
he's adapting like anybody else, but he still has the, the, you know, the starting point and the instincts. Um, uh, now a lot more programs are running it. It's not quite as unique as it was back then, but that doesn't mean he's forgotten how to, or that he no longer, um, has that. But when you said Oregon never had a top 10 class, you know, I don't, they don't need to have, you say he doesn't need to have top 10 classes, but right now they're 85th right behind ball state. So probably need to do better than that. Yeah. But signing day isn't October 9th. I know. I know. This is from Chris in Astoria. Dear Stuart and Bruce, greetings again from College Football Purgatory, Queens, New York. I mean, that's Jets and Giants Purgatory. But an unlikely hypothetical, how would the CFP committee handle WVU's resume as Big, Ten, Big 12 champs against an ACC champ, Clemson, and or Notre Dame, each having the same number of losses? Would the CFP committee use the Hurricane Florence cancellation of WVU NC State to justify preferring Clemson on account of the 13th data point or Notre Dame using the never defined, quote, clearly superior, unquote, standard and suggesting some equivalence to both teams having played 12 games? I don't expect this situation to occur, but I'd appreciate your insight. There's certain phrases in the college football playoff lexicon that I just we're never going to be able to kill off, are we? And one is 13th data point. It's not about playing 13 games. It's the fact that, and this was in relation to the Big 12 uh, yes. not having a championship game. It wasn't about the fact that they didn't play 13 games. It was the fact they missed out on another good opponent Another good opponent in the championship game. So in the case of West Virginia, now look, NC State right now is 5-0, and and it may turn out that they missed an opportunity to play a really good non-conference team. So obviously that hurts, but... They win the Big 12. Let's say they're the, the 11 and 1 Big 12 champ. Uh, if they got left out, it wouldn't be because they didn't get to 12 wins. It would be they just didn't have enough big wins. But I got to tell you, the way the Big 12 is shaping up now, if you can, if West Virginia goes 12 and 1 and wins the Big 12, you know they will have beaten probably Oklahoma. At least they may have lost to one of these, but they will have beaten a bunch out of Oklahoma, Texas, TCU, Oklahoma State, Texas Tech. You know, there are yeah, quality wins in there. By the way, I'm not sure anybody has a tougher November than yeah. they do at Texas. Texas is now a top 10 team against TCU, who was good. I mean, they narrowly lost to Ohio State, and they did lose to Texas. But then at Oklahoma State, now Oklahoma State's starting to look a little rough, but still it's on the road to water. And then they, they close against an Oklahoma team that's ranked number 11. And then they're going to play a Big 12 title opponent if they get that far, which will probably either be Texas or Oklahoma again. So that's potentially three games against top 15 opponents. And who knows where TCU could be ranked then. I would think they'll probably be ranked. So that's that's carrying a lot of weight. If they are 12-0, and 0, let's use your Notre Dame-like team because we brought them up last week. I, I think Notre Dame's really good. But they're not going to have a bunch of ranked wins. I mean, if you look at what Notre Dame's schedule is, they got to hope, this is them being Notre Dame, they got to hope that Michigan goes on this roll because they beat them in the opener. But, you know, the rest of them, Stanford looks awful right now. I mean, Stanford just got, just got mauled. Virginia Tech is not going to be ranked, although they won handily on the road. That's a tough place to play. Now, here's what they got. Pitt, struggling. Navy just got blown out by Air Force. You're on the ladder, Northwestern, on the road. They're really bad. Florida State. Hey, 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 hang on. They, they went on the road and beat a top 25 team this past week. What is Northwestern's record still? 
two and three. Thank you. Florida State struggling this year. Syracuse just lost a pit, and then they got at USC. They may only have, by the end of the year, aside from Michigan, who I think will be in the top 20 or top 15, I don't think they're going to have anybody else on their resume who's going to be a top 15 opponent. Yeah, it's interesting that he brought up Clemson and Notre Dame as the comparisons because I actually think those are the teams that may not be able to a loss. Especially Notre Dame, because obviously they don't get that. I don't think Notre Dame can afford a loss just because the way their schedule sets up is so so watered down at this point. It's not their fault that USC has struggled, that Florida State is more down than usual, that Virginia Tech is probably a little more down. I mean, Virginia Tech, if they they end up at 9-3 but with a loss to ODU, I don't know if they'll be ranked or not. Stanford, they have really struggled more than usual. It's just, I don't. I know Notre Dame fans will not like hearing this, but I think this is going to be a reality. I think this is a really good Notre Dame team that, especially with the way Ian Book is playing, looks like they should be a top five team. And well, maybe Dame that carries may... weight. Maybe that carries weight. I just think, you know, this is going to feel a little bit like Alabama before, last year, where, and granted, Alabama had a loss, but where Alabama didn't have a lot of really good wins, but you look at them and go, I think they're really good. Now, what certainly Alabama has that Notre Dame doesn't is Alabama has the credibility of, of just kicking people's butts for the last right. five years. And Notre Dame does not have that. So mm-hmm. how, do you re- how do you reconcile that? I think Notre Dame will always have a challenge getting into the playoff short of going undefeated. Now, of course, it depends on who you're being compared to. You know, last year Alabama was being compared to a two-loss Ohio State team. So if Notre Dame has a loss, but there are not four power teams with only one loss, then that's a different story. But you know, I think it's always going to be challenging for them. Now that the Big 12 has a championship game, they are really the only ones that don't have a chance to get to 12-1. and one. So Can, can I ask you this? Yeah. Just like since you, we talked about this last week, I think you're right, but I'm not as convinced as you are about Notre Dame being a lock if they are undefeated. All right, yes, so they are a lock if they're undefeated. Let me portrait, put this down as is. Let's say Ohio State goes 13-0. I think they're good enough to do that. I think the path is such. They're going 13-0. Alabama, 13-0. Wins the SEC. They're definitely going. Clemson, 13-0. And then you get a West Virginia team that's 12-0. You really think Notre Dame is going over West Virginia? West Virginia's resume would be better. So you know how sometimes you, you claim that I don't read your columns? Clearly, you did not read Forward Pass this morning. I didn't, Stu. Uh, I'm sorry. It's a holiday. I got the kids home. Okay. There's well, my excuse. Blame two for you. As I, as I wrote in there and as I will continue to remind people, there has never in 20 years of the BCS and the college playoff been four undefeated power teams. Okay. okay. There's only been one in the first four years of the playoff. Okay. If Notre Dame is undefeated, they will be in the playoff. If any Power 5 team is undefeated, they will be in the playoff. Let me ask you this way, then. If Georgia... Is twelve and zero loses to Alabama in the SEC total title game close, mm-hmm. and they are twelve. They are twelve and one, and let's let's say somehow Clemson Clemson is uh, is twelve and one, and Notre Dame and West Virginia is twelve and zero. Notre Dame is twelve and zero. You think Notre Dame is going over both Georgia and Clemson? I think that that's a better question about in terms of like. A twelve and one team, whether it's Georgia or Alabama, that didn't win its conference. That's a better, better question. But again, I think you know we saw it last year. The committee to this point has not shown a willingness to drop down a loss. 
to take two losses over one loss. So I certainly don't think they're going to be willing to take to leave out an undefeated team for a one-loss team. It's just didn't, not wait, wait, correct be me if too I'm wrong, crazy. But didn't we get into this like a while back when Jameis Winston and Florida State were undefeated and they were dropping because they weren't looking impressive. Now, look, I think Notre Dame's been more impressive. But just the resume, I, I wonder about how that's going to hold up. Again, there's a real chance that they may only have one – I mean, there's an actual realistic shot. They may only have one top 25 win. It's interesting you bring up that Jameis went year because you're right. That was the first year of the playoff. And they, and, and Pete, I mean, the committee model was completely new at that point. So the idea that undefeated defending national champ Florida State wasn't number one was just nuts to people. And at one point, I think they dropped as low as fourth because uh, they were. They weren't beating people handily. They were, they were. And then they got exposed in that Oregon game. But, uh, you know, it's interesting. That was the first year with committee. Jeff Long was the chairman. Uh, I feel like that year did not actually end up setting much of a tone for what we've seen since then. They, you know, they dropped TCU from third to sixth. You know, you came away from that first year thinking, wow, the committee is pretty radical. They do things a lot differently than the polls. And then with each passing year, now you have a different chairman. You have, you know, different... At this point, I think it's almost completely... uh, reset itself. I don't think there's anybody left that was on the committee originally. They seem to be more conservative, but we'll see what this year's does. Now, what about Clemson, though? Clemson, you know, people had wondered whether they'll play a ranked team all year. NC State is going to be ranked when they play them this week, or next week. Certainly, if they make the ACC title game play Miami, I think Miami would be ranked by then. But it's not a great schedule. And so, as crazy as it sounds about a team that has been in the playoff three straight years... If they lose a game, are they doomed? That's a good question. I mean, I think that's look. There's a couple of things that would have helped them if uh, if it had played right for them. Certainly, NC State hanging on is a good thing. You know, the BC I doubt will be ranked, but there's a chance they could be ranked. That's on the road, South Carolina. But as you said, I think whoever they play in the ACC title game from the Coastal, if it is Miami, will be ranked then. Yeah, and. I, you know, and they did play at Texas A&M. I don't think Texas A&M will be ranked, but Texas A&M's not a. I mean, their non-conference schedule is not a is not a pushover. I mean, with at South Car- with at uh, Texas A&M and South Carolina, those are those are yeah. two good I opponents. I think they're going to be okay. I think they would they would probably get much the same benefit that Alabama did last year. I think Notre Dame, since they haven't been at this level in a while, would be less likely to get that benefit of the doubt. So. Tell you what, if you're a fan of chaos in college football, uh, not that people don't already root against Notre Dame in some cases, but I think it would be fascinating to see an 11-1, how an 11-1 Notre Dame team is treated by the committee. It almost happened in... Um, it's not an 11 I don't think 11-1 Notre Dame is going to have much hope. I really don't. Well, I think in 2015, Notre Dame was 10-1 going into the Stanford game and lost on a last-second field goal, so they were out. But if they had won that game... It was basically going to come down to them or 11-1 and Oklahoma uh, for the last spot. So they would be in the thick of the conversation, but you're right. they may It may be that they can't do that, So, which raises the even larger question, and I am reluctant to bring this up at the very end of a podcast, but if Notre Dame gets left out of the playoff because they didn't play a conference championship game, what might that lead to? I'm guessing it's going to lead to Brando on our podcast talking about how they're going to the, going to the ACC. Yeah, we will. You're right. The morning after that happens, we will get Tim Brando on here, ACC expert, 
to tell us how quickly they can they can play. We might not even invite him. He just may hack into him back into the Skype. Can they can they get them how quickly can the ACC get that done? Can they would they be ready in time for the start of next season? I don't I'm not going there yet. I don't I don't know if that's that would that would have quite that drastic effect, but it would certainly become a conversation topic. Uh, yeah. all right. If you're if you're a Notre Dame fan, you better root for Stanford to keep and Michigan though, I think. Yeah, I mean I would think one if not both of those wins will still be a really good win and and you know if USC wins your game this week, maybe USC's heading toward a decent record when they play them at the end of the year. So, You're right. Um, all right. We went very long this episode, but it's all right. I think I think we kept it interesting. I hope we did. As always, send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com, and we'll see you next time. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to The Audible at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. We'd like to thank our producer, Nick Fink, and we'd like to thank Kevin and the Octaves for our intro song, Dangerous. You can download their music on iTunes or Spotify. If you haven't subscribed to The Athletic yet, what are you waiting for? Read both myself and Bruce and all our other great writers there. Go to theathletic.com slash theaudible and get 25% off. You can also follow our coverage at The Athletic CFB. You can follow me at SL Mandel. Follow Bruce at Bruce Feldman CFB. We'll see you next time. Place, throw our money